Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Hey, welcome to the Pinelander Podcast. My name is Paul Lefebvre. I'm uh, not here with my ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. He's been sent out on a mission, and I'm hoping that he's doing well. Uh, but today in the studio, uh, we have Lieutenant Colonel Retired Gene Kalan, uh, who is a published author. Uh, he has a uh, distinguished que- uh, career of 25 years uh, from Vietnam as a lieutenant until he retired as a lieutenant colonel. Uh, having also been involved in Desert Storm, Panama, also been in uh, Germany, Italy, amongst other places, uh, served uh, as a senior member of U.S. military delegation to NATO in Brussels. He has a Ph.D., and uh, and I'm excited uh, about what his book has been doing. I'm excited to have you here on the podcast today, sir. Here. Welcome, sir. Good to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah, as uh, you know, we... <clears throat> we we're hoping to talk about, and we finally get this chance to sneak you in the G base here. Sure, is talk about something that we're seeing um, in the armed forces, and, and I think is alarming, and that is uh, a vacuum of good leadership. Okay, and I think uh, I think we both agree in that, at least from the standpoint that it's not the type of leadership that we grew up under in the armed forces, and. Uh, I think uh, I think we would all be better for listening to you for an hour. I want I got some good f- questions I want to field to you about okay. that. Uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, you know you know that we we bring on some high quality uh, guests, and uh, you know Colonel Kalan has definitely been in a position to develop leaders, and that's kind of where we want to go to today. Is we want to look at his career, we want to look at his idea. Uh, what he's actually done himself is three components of developing combat leaders. And he's going to flesh that out for us. But I think if you listen to this, you're going to get a lot about what leadership is. Or we're going to talk about toxic leadership. Mm. We're going to talk about a lot about developing uh, your own leadership potential. Uh, because it's always good to, to uh, be introspective, look at yourself. And uh, so this, this uh, podcast is really for the armed forces and also for the corporate sector, for those of you that, you know, there's leadership in uh, that also. I mean, there's an aspect that you can use. But uh, so uh, having just said that, uh, I wanted to ask you this. Sure. And, and this is something that is uh, uh, very interesting to me is when you, they say when you take command, right. you're by yourself. Right. right. <laughs> and, and uh, uh, you know, I'm a boss. And so I've... You know, a civilian a boss, and so uh, I've never been in command. I was an enlisted man. But uh, my position now, I see a little piece of that. Like, hey, you're up there. It's, you know, you're the guy in charge, and and it's a different um, – you're, you're held to a different standard, if you will, sure. because you're up on a pedestal, whether you like it or not. And the way you talk to your people and the way you interact is really important. 
And I think uh, something we were talking about prior to getting started here today is uh, toxic leaders and, uh, and just how um, people don't quit their job, they quit their boss. Right. And, and so part of this is really, you know, it would be good to look at ourselves if we're a boss and say, okay, am I doing some of these things? And are there people wanting to, you know, uh, jump ship because of my toxic leadership? But, uh, but I just wanted to ask you about that just, just before we get started. Sure. What that was like, stepping in, you're in command, and I imagine that would be a little bit euphoric, you know, because you're like, hey, you finally get to do the job that you were trained to do. You're given that tremendous responsibility. But what was that like, just in your own words, just the initial taking that and knowing that you had that responsibility and you were in charge? Right. Well, I commanded uh, actually five times in my 25 years in the Army. And um, they were all probably the, the highlight points of uh, it's always better to be in charge than to be a staff officer, okay? So the idea of um, taking charge, uh, I was always conscious that uh, everything I said or did, uh, there was a, uh, a writer named S.L.A. Marshall. He said that every military leader is living in a fishbowl. And that's just not officers. That's uh, NCOs also. And you're always being watched. I mean, you're like a walking leadership uh, workshop, a walking leadership seminar. They wa they, people watch how you, and the higher you go, like when I was a battalion commander, you've got um, lieutenants and captains working for you and you know, first sergeants and sergeant majors, and they're, they're watching you, um, what you say and what you don't say is just as important what you say, and uh, you're always being observed. So you, I was always conscious of that because the, um, Albert Schweitzer said the highest form of leadership is leadership by example. And he said, example is leadership. So yeah. I was always conscious of um, where I was, what I was doing, how I presented myself. And uh, I'm a practicing Christian, so I always count on a good Lord to uh, help me in everything. Because I was quite convinced he could give me supernatural skills to do what I had to do. Because I want to tell you. you know, Amen to that. <laughs> that'll preach, right? <laughs> but anyway, when I was a battalion commander, and um, we, we deployed like maybe from Fort Bragg, um, Fort Liberté, uh, like three days after um, Saddam invaded Kuwait, like we were first on the ground. And um, it was 130 degrees, and uh, we had missions that, you know, it's like, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do all that, right? Do those things. And so um, you, you can never tell your boss, you know, it's not my skill set or, you know, it's not <laughs> my gift area. You say, yes, they're three bags full, right? So that's, that's why I think that trusting in the Lord, and I'm going to talk about that later, he gives you skills to do things, and he moves things around so that um, you can be successful. So those trusting the Lord and um, you know always being conscious of uh, the example I was setting and uh, what I was saying. Like I said, it's really important. Uh, what I didn't say was as important what I did say, you know, because I always said we're not going to tolerate any kind of racial discrimination, any kind of sexual harassment, and if you caught a hot on a pee test, I'm going to throw you out of the army. Just to, you know, I was in a position to do that, so I'm just not threatening here for fun. So, you know, all those things. And um, and I don't know, but I was always, I always kind of prepared myself for command. So it wasn't like I was thrown into something and say, what is this? Although I got to tell you, when I was selected to command an airborne battalion at Fort Bragg, I was like, what? Mm. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a big deal. Yeah, so anyway, though, it all worked out, and uh, I'm here to talk about it. And I had two of my soldiers had minor wounds in the first Gulf War, and uh, Vietnam was an advisor, and you know, we had some... Pretty serious firefights, but um, overall, um, I, 
it was a good experience, and, and I may have PTSD in some respects, <laughs> but I'm not sure. My wife never <laughs> accused me of that. I've been married 55 years, so she never accused me of anything like that. So, okay. Oh, man, 55 years. Yeah. I mean, that is uh, I said an anomaly we, these yeah, days. We Quite dated, an accomplishment. We dated three and a half years before that. Yeah, wow. Yeah, she's the princess, man. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, uh, the interesting thing you said there, um, so many interesting things, but just being, like you said, being in the fishbowl. Yeah. You know, that's so true. Right. And you know, everybody's watching you. <clears throat> you're almost uh, held to a different standard. Correct. And even though you're setting the standard. And uh, so that's, that's the underscores the importance of, you know, leading by example. Right. Because, uh, you know, that's one of the toxic things I always hated in a leader is, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Correct. You know, uh, and then the other thing I think is, uh, I think would be a good place to segue into what you have is sure. your experiences there in Vietnam as an advisor, right. as a young lieutenant, and then just kind of uh, maybe some of the things you learn about leadership there. Maybe that'd be a good place oh, to get started. Right. Well, I was a second lieutenant, right? And uh, I was commissioned as a signal officer. So um, I volunteered to go to Vietnam, which... Uh, that's why they sent me to military advisory command. I'm not quite sure, but um, so you know, I didn't really know what was going on, so I show up there, right? And uh, so my colonel says to me, he says, "You think you're a signal officer, but we just had a whole bunch of our uh, tactical guys, infantry guys, uh, killed and wounded. So we're going to put you on, uh, send you on operations, you know, combat <laughs> assaults, uh, patrols, ambushes." And I said, "What?" <laughs> Wait a minute. But it was fine, you know, because uh, I always fancied myself a soldier, and that's what soldiers do, right? Yeah. So I was able to do it. And um, my primary counterpart, uh, ready for this? Uh, I'd been in the Army less than a year. He'd been in the Vietnamese Army uh, 13 years and was wounded eight times. Wow. Yeah. But he liked me because in my radio, I had an RTO always with me, an interpreter. In my radio, we had gunships and airstrikes and so forth. And so. Yeah. And medevacs, and he liked that. So, oh, and yeah. of course, plus it was a big loss of face if they lost their, their American advisor. So they always had a little contingent kind of hanging around me and so forth. So that was good. Yeah. And this, so you were at uh, which which corps? Fourth Corps in the Fourth Delta. Corps. We were. Um, our team was on the uh, Cambodian border. Mm. In fact, um, we were probably a hundred yards. Of course, you, there was no border, formal border, but it was like a hundred yards from. Uh, it was all rice paddy. And that was where the Cambodia border, and, and we were in the 44th Tactical Zone in, in Chow Duck, and um, we were in the Chow Duck River, and uh, there was a, a canal, the Vintage Canal, that ran from the Chow Duck River to the South China Sea, mm. and that was parallel with the border. And so when the NVA would come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, they had to cross that uh, Vintage Canal in order to get into their hideouts in the Seven Mountain regions. They always had caves in these uh, mountains, and it was, it was a quirk of nature. It's like Nui Koto, Nui Ket, Nui Bajai. They were these mountains, literally mountains. They would just jut out of the, the rice paddies. And they had uh, these caves there. And uh, we would arc like B-52 them. And uh, we never, frankly, got them out of there. But we always knew they were coming across the canal. So we had PBRs. Uh, the Navy had those Brown River you know, patrol boats. And we would, they would take a, a little patrol of um, American soldiers, which I was part of many times. And we'd set up ambushes along the canal. Mm. And uh, it was quite interesting because the Viennese would, uh, or the NVA would send, they knew we would be set up, right? Uh, but they didn't know where exactly. And so they would, uh, initially, they would send two guys. And then if we took them under fire, 
the main force would go somewhere else. So we learned that they, that was their tactic. So we let those two guys come through. And, <laughs> and, nice. and the, uh, yeah, we, um, I remember one time we were on, uh, we were on an ambush and, uh, we had this sea wolf, this, um, gunship that, uh, Navy had and he radios and he says, he sees movement. Well, that was my patrol. Mm. That was my ambush. So that was, that was a pretty serious friendly fire there. I saw those tracers wow. like 20 feet in front of me. Yeah, cease fire. <laughs> wow, yeah. yeah. And then... Uh, friendly fire, isn't it? Uh, we got in a big firefight one time, and uh, we had um, these hunter-killer teams that um, would... Um, what they were was a command and control ship, which uh, myself and um, a Vietnamese officer and a interpreter, we would go out. And we would look for free fire zones. We looked to take the Vietnamese under the NVA under fire. And um, we had two gunships, two Cobras, and a flare ship that had these buckets with these, you know, million yeah. candle flares on them. So we're flying around and uh, nothing's going on. And we, uh, the command control ship always had their lights on because we wanted to take fire, right? So then the, the Cobras would make their runs. Well, all of a sudden we see the whole distance and the light up the Vinte Canal, and uh, it was interesting. The NVA generally had green tracers, and of course we had red tracers, so it was like a Christmas firefight, right? No. And so we go there, uh, the Navy push, and um, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Navy had uh, several guys that had been uh, wounded. So my W-1 warrant officer pilot asked me, at that time I was the first lieutenant, Sir, you want to go down and pick those guys? Because I'm in charge, right, of those four helicopters. Sir, you want to go and pick those guys up? And I said, sure, right, because I knew if I was down there. So yeah. we picked up six guys wow. wounded. And, uh, you know, the whole, you know. But, you know, we had the, it was like Christmas because the, uh, the flares were out there and uh, lots of, you know, the gunships were making their runs. And so we picked them up, came back, dropped them off on the Navy tender in the, in the Chonok River. Helicopter threw me back and I went to bed. So two days later, I got notified I'm getting a 30-day drop from Vietnam, and they're sending me to Germany. So I'm in Germany, wow. and one day a little package shows up. It's an air medal with V for doing that. Wow. And making that decision, yeah. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I didn't know the uh, – I, I knew we had – I mean, I was just looking at the map when you were talking about the sure. the, the canal, and uh, I, I didn't know that they had those uh, – that that was an actual route – yeah, um, they'd come across I the canal. There was a uh, Cambodia was a sort of a cross border sanctuary yeah, for sure. Viet Cong, uh, but I didn't know uh, to the extent they were getting down there to the delta. That's awesome that uh, we were. Uh, sorry. Yeah, the what I was curious about is sure. this was uh, 69, Sixty nine. Okay, so Okay, got it. So we had already started with the uh, drawing uh, the cords, you know, with the uh, coin. Uh, program that we had over there, which was actually, I think, was working. Uh, our, I mean, I wasn't born yet, but what I've read is <laughs> said. Uh, that hurt. I, Come on, that yeah, hurt. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it seemed like the, the actions that you guys had were part of this big program that's actually working. Sure. And it just, the uh, I guess the American people were tired of us being over there. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the big... I don't want to open this big uh, ball of wax of why this coin effort didn't work in Vietnam. But, right. uh, but the big thing is, um, I mean, you learn, you learn some important lessons there Oh my! as a uh, young leader. Sure. 
I mean, I mean, I'm sure you could. We could talk about that for like five episodes, but can you just bring out a couple? Well, you know, I'm uh, 22 years old, right? Yeah. And uh, I got to tell you, I really enjoyed the Vietnamese people and Vietnamese army. Yeah. And um, they were just, they were, uh, the South Vietnamese are happy people and they were, they were always kind to me and uh, I always treated them with the highest respect and dignity and they returned that. But I'm going to tell you, there was a number of my colleagues on that advisory team that just thought the Vietnamese, uh, South Vietnamese were just the worst ever. Yeah. And they had a really tough time. And... Um, I don't know. I had a really good time. I even got a Vietnamese cross of gallantry with Bronze Star from my counterpart. And so, um, yeah, I, I, uh, that was my biggest lesson. Because, you know, people universally, they want to be treated with respect and dignity. They want to be uh, affirmed, uh, treated with affection, and, and so forth. You know, it's the whole Christian notion of love, right? Yeah. They want to be treated like they're, they're somebody, right? And so, um, I, I, that was my modus even back then. So, I, uh, that's one of the biggest lessons I learned. And that's not, that, to carry that further, when I commanded, I always treated, uh, Sun Tzu said, you should always treat your soldiers like they're your children, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you wouldn't put your children in harm's way and, and, and uh, allow them to get hurt unnecessarily, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that's kind of how I looked at the people that were always working for me. And I found that um, if you... Treat people like that, they respond to your leadership. Because, you know, there's something magic, there's something mysteri- mysterious about leadership where one person can influence um, hundreds of, and th- thousands of par- par- people with their, with their words and with their personality and so forth. And so even to this day, that's hard to understand and hard to explain. But uh, part of the, I think one of the imperatives with that is uh, how you take care of your folks and how you look after them. And um, like I said, Sun Tzu said, Treat them like your children, and because they will respond to that. Because, you know, the thing is, um, one of the key elements about being in the military and being in combat, you know, people talk about mom and apple pie and the flag, yeah, okay. But uh, then, okay, all these researchers say their people fight for their buddies. Okay, and why do they fight for their buddies? Because their buddies, they figure, are going to help keep them alive and survive. And see, when, when all is said and done, People want to go back home after the war is over. They want to survive. And so if, if you, as a leader, can help ensure that, you, you know, as best you can, because, you know, there's, you know you don't, you're not God, so you don't have control over everything. But if you can lead in such a way that your soldiers survive uh, and they can see what you're doing to do that, they don't throw you into, um, you know, you're not... You're not taking them and throwing them into action just because you can get a medal or because you know it's uh, the wind is blowing that way or because the colonel is pushing to do that. No, you you do it when it's only necessary. And uh, you mentioned about toxic leadership, okay? So there was a guy named George Reed, and he wrote an article for in the um, Command and General Staff uh, College Journal. Uh, it's been quite a while now, I guess, a number of years. But anyway, uh, it was so well received. It was about toxic leadership. It was so well received that he actually wrote a, wrote a book about it, yeah? And that book is still around. I think it's on Amazon. Anyway, uh, he said there's three elements of, to toxic leaders. Number one, they don't care about their, their people. Number two, they only care about themselves and what's, you know, the good things that they can do for themselves. And number three, th- they create a vi- an environment, a culture that's totally negative mm-hmm. and that's totally toxic. And... Um, yeah, I think everybody, if, if they've spent any time in the workplace, even in the military or wherever, you've worked for people like that, right? 
Oh yeah. Yeah, you work for people like that. So that's yeah, toxic. Yeah, and then um so what I'm getting here too also is uh yeah, you treat your soldiers as their your children, sure. as your family. Right. I'm hearing that you're taking prudent risks. Prudent. Because look, the army is a, a dangerous line of work. Well, it is. And we're called to close with destroy the enemy. But these are you're taking risks that are prudent. You're you're right. you're uh you're weighing the risk. Right. Uh, and the reward out of this, because you have blood and treasure to spend. So that's important. And also the the idea that uh, you want to create an environment uh, around you right. that is not toxic, so that that's, uh, that enables someone to do the very best they can and sure. you know, all that stuff. Uh, so I think that's something that I know I remembered uh, learning again and again and again. I was re- reminded of that, that uh, you... You're the one who fosters that environment. Sure. You're, you're creating that, Created. in some sense, the biodome that everybody's living in by the way you interact with people. And, and man, you could, you could really make someone's world suck if you're, you know, just this abrasive, narcissistic guy. Sure. And, and, and that where you see your, your people as just a stepping stone right. to get to the next grade, which is terrible. Right. Well, but yeah. obviously, you didn't think that way. No, I didn't. And, no. um, I always had good success, like uh, in the, the first Gulf War, um, I deployed with, uh, of my 800-man woman battalion, I deployed with 600, and the morale of the 600 that deployed was sky high, and the morale of the 200 that I left at Fort Liberty, Fort Bragg, was in the toilet. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. No, no. Huh? That's happened to me before. Yeah. Uh, the Gulf War, I stayed back. I was in Germany. Oh, no. When you guys went and lived in tents. And wore pro masks and watched the Air Force pummel uh, the Republican Guard. <laughs> yeah, it's good. But I mean, I'm not saying you didn't do anything, but I'm just saying I didn't do it. Right. <laughs> and my morale was in the toilet. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go somewhere where I don't, I'm not going to miss the next thing. Yeah. And of course, you know, that's what led me to sure. go Special Forces. But, but yeah, that's so important that uh, that you're you key onto that. You know, right. that you your concern. I guess another other thing, kind of an obvious thing, but as a leader, you're concerned with how your words are received. Oh yeah, and how they perceive you. Oh, you know, your words can. Uh, it's been. It was written that your words can change the world. Yeah. I mean, you're you know, God created heavens and earth with words, and um, let there be, and it was, and it was good. So words are powerful, yeah. and um, yeah, we. Um, I got to the Persian Gulf. It was a hundred. In Saudi Arabia, it was 130 degrees. And we only got there a few a days. Shade. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we thought we were pretty tough because we were doing the core four, man. We were running four miles a day at Fort Bragg. Well, we were very tough because because you figure, okay, listen. Now, 130 degrees, uh, if you look at 40 degrees from um, 90, that's 50 degrees difference, right? So if you look at, like, uh, 80 degrees from 130, that's 50 degrees different. Think of how different it is from 80 to what it, I mean, it was so hot. And, uh, you know, people would be carrying around bottles of water, and you'd be sweating. You wouldn't even know it because it'd be evaporated immediately. And so um, anyway, we got there, and we had 600 soldiers, and I got another 400 attachments. So I had 1,000 people on 20 different sites. And I'm going to tell you, wow. I, pr- I prayed every morning with my chaplain, and in the evening we had a little prayer group, and my wife had a little prayer group at Fort Bragg. That's a she, big footprint. Well, wow. she, when she was with the Sergeant Major's wife and a little group of ladies, and we were always praying for the safety and security and the mission success. So, uh, you know, you can only be in control of so much, right? 
So I had these like 20 different, because I was in the Signal Corps, right? We had these 20 different sites. We did the 18th Corps Main, and we had this tropo scatter. Um, listen to this, the tropo scatter company that had, you could bounce signals off the troposphere, and that stuff never worked because there was never enough distance. So we get to the Gulf, and, you know, the 18th Airborne Corps had the 101st and 82nd and 24th Division, and there was enough distance. The VHF uh, couldn't reach those uh, without, like, double or triple quadruple relays, which is ineffective. So they used our, we had to use our tropo, and that's digital, and that was crystal clear. And the only thing we had to do is we had the jury rig uh, air conditioners, because they had the air, air conditioners on the, the tropo rigs, and uh, we were able to do that. So when the smoke all cleared, my unit got a meritorious unit's uh, commendation. And what, what was your unit? I'm sorry. 327 Signal, Nighthawks, yeah, Airborne, Nighthawks, and the... Um, yeah, my brigade commander said that in the history of warfare, no signal battalion did what mine did. <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, I'm, if I understand what you're saying, too, is, uh, you know, obviously the employment of the equipment you had hadn't known that use never. up to that point. It never you, worked up until yeah. that time. Never. <laughs> we never got it to work. Wow. And that's, that's because, awesome. primarily because uh, the, the distances were never great enough. Um, anyway... Um, to talk about a warrior mindset here, which uh, I like to touch on in a second, but I always told my soldiers, look, we're here to prepare to go to war. That's what yeah. soldiers do. You know, um, there is, it's in the Constitution that uh, provide for the common defense. That's what's in the preamble of the Constitution. Yeah. And so that's what the military does, provide for the common defense. And uh, what does that mean? Ultimately, it means going to war. So I would always... I always tried to create, okay, we were signaling people, okay? But we still were, that's considered a combat arms, right? So I always tell you, that's what we're about. We're, and we, everything you do, you do uh, as if you're going to uh, prepare for war. And if, you're, if it's not helping you prepare for the battlefield, then stop doing it and do something else. Mm. And, you know, there's all these distractions when you're in garrison, you know. They take people from you to do this, that, and the other. And, and uh, so we always had to really struggle to get good training in the fight, but... Uh, and we like to spend a lot of time in the field, too, because uh, wars generally ha don't happen in a garrison environment. You know? There you go. Yeah, because the whole idea of, uh, I like the phrase, soldier craft. We like to make sure field craft so that mm. the soldiers were able to operate in the cold and the heat and the rain and the, you know, in all kinds of um, uh, potentially ugly weather. Yeah, and, you know, uh, we were talking about this prior. It's uh, something that uh, I, I experienced as a young private is, uh, sergeant's time. Sure. And, good. you know, I don't know if that's done anymore, but it's sure, I think it needs to come back. From what I've seen, you know, just the basic skills, the wood skills, you know, sure. the land nav, the, you know, these things are done this way, and old Sarge takes you out for the day yeah. and, uh, you know, learns you this thing, these things. And I think uh, uh, something I see in the Marine Corps is good. Right. Not that I have haven't seen the army in a while. Is the Marines? They push leadership down to the lowest level possible. Right. And uh, I was impressed with that last time I was out at Twenty Nine Palms. I have a brother-in-law out there. <clears throat> I was invited to go out there and uh, share some stories with them. Sure. But uh, that's something I see over there. Is they they actually dedicate time. I don't know what's going on with the army culture, but I think it would would be good. But leadership. So I think. Uh, you know, for those of you out there that aren't familiar, you know, we, we subscribe to the age-old uh, definition of leadership. You know, it's a, the process of influencing others, uh, providing purpose, direction, and motivation to accomplish the mission 
and bettering the organization. But leadership's influence. I mean, yeah. you could you could ring it out. It's all influence. And well, what kind of influence is it going to be? Right. Is it going to be toxic? Is it going to be um, innovative leadership? It's going to be uh, uh, leadership that uh, really you know puts the winds in everyone's sails. Right. You know, and and, and uh, motivates them to do the task. I mean, what that's that's going to be up to you. But yeah, the uh, so what do you? This was interesting. You talked about earlier. What did you have for those three components? Because I think maybe now that we kind of grease the skids with this, sure. Uh, three components of developing combat leaders. All right. I'd li- I'd like to share something though that Clausewitz said. Yeah. He said the battlefield is a place of death, blood, hideous wounds, suffering, hardship, and chaos. There's incredible noise, people screaming, trying to yell above the noise, bedlam, commotion. Anyway, that's where the leader has to lead. Okay, that's mm. this is not in a corporate office or it's some, uh, you know, Chaos. <laughs> McDonald's or something. We're talking, this is serious. That's another day at the office. Yeah, sure. Potentially. That's, yeah. So that's the thing. And um, like I always would train my, tell my soldiers, look, you're warriors, right? You're war- male or female, you're warriors, right? And you excel at fighting or the types of thing we did to support the, the, the frontline fighters. And so um, part of it is to... Um, develop skills so that you also survive. And um, there was a, I always tried to instill a, a warrior mindset. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, Admiral Nelson, he was, Horatio Nelson is the greatest admiral the British ever produced. He said, for me, it's combat service or nothing. Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders in Cuba and the war with Spain had a slogan. They said, we're rough and tough. And we're the stuff. We came to fight and can't get enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and then I always liked the Top Gun movie, Viper, in the, the initial briefing. He said, gentlemen, this school is about combat. There are no points for second place, right? <laughs> and see, these are the types of things. You talk about sergeant times. I would give um, lots of professional development classes to my officers. And I always tried to get them because, you know, people look at me, you're pushing this warrior mindset thing you know like are you sh- kidding me what what is this about well that's what yeah. we're in a business for okay and the yeah. ja- you know they, they said the japanese samurai were d- delight in battle they delight in battle and all the male spartans were soldiers and when they weren't fighting they were preparing to fight and it said when leonidas led his 300 uh spartans against several thousand uh, persians at the battle of thermopylae thermopylae it was said that this was the moment in time for which all those 300 warriors were made all right so Anyway, that's, um, but I have to share one, yeah. I have to share one more thing. Now, we're not talking about, you know, Attila the Hunt or um, uh, Vlad the Impaler or, um, you know, what is it, <clears throat> Genghis Khan. We're talking about uh, maybe the ideal or p- potential idea would be a medieval knight who is a, a trained warrior from the battlefield, and he can also save the damsel in distress and participate in the king's ballroom celebration. There's a balance, a harmony between being in the trenches and, uh, you know, being at a lawn party at the embassy. And so we're not just talking about, you know, warrior burning things down and killing people. We're talking about being able to function sufficiently. In, um, and, they, and, and we're not just talking about the, the leader, but the leader has to make his unit so that uh, they, too, have that same uh, mindset. That there's a balance. And that, not like Lieutenant Callie at Milai. Because those people were out of control. They just, yeah. they, had been, they had taken so many uh, casualties uh, from, you know, like mines and so forth that their discipline just was undermined and they just lost control. That's not what we're talking about here. 
But I got to share one more thing before I talk about the three items. But there was a guy named Lewis Simpson. And to me, he was the ideal combination of a warrior and a renaissance man. He won a Pulitzer Prize for poetry, okay? But prior to that, in World War II, he was 101st Airborne, made two combat jumps, was awarded two bronze stars for valor, and received two purple hearts. Now listen, he wrote in his book, North of Jamaica, that the aim of military training is not to prepare soldiers for battle, but to make them long for it. Okay, that's what we're here for. That's where, see, to me, that's what the military is about. I was always concerned, you know, when I, when I would tell people that I'd been in the Army for 25 and a half years, uh, there was a number of people that looked at me, oh, they would say, man, that was the worst three years of my life being in the Army. Now, see, I never wanted my soldiers that serve under me to leave thinking that or saying that because it's, it's um, whatever, okay, three or whatever amount of years they were in, but you wanted that when they left the service that I was a soldier and I did soldier stuff, you yeah. know? You know, I did uh, things in the field and, uh, okay, deployed or not, whatever. The point is that uh, I was trained and I was a, a real uh, soldier. And there was a, a General Edison uh, Scholes. I worked for him. He was my um, senior reader when I was a battalion commander. He was a deputy commandant at the infantry school at Fort Moore, Fort Benning. I can't even say that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he said they couldn't do enough. They couldn't make the training tough enough for those young soldiers that came through infantry school. They couldn't make it tough enough. So that's the idea. So when, uh, that you, when you leave the service, at least when, when I, in um, my mindset, you um, told them, okay, you're a warrior, and that's what you're, we're training you to be. Mm. So even when you go, okay, you get out of the service and go back home, you can say, yeah, I did something for my country. I did something good, and uh, I provided for the common defense. So anyway, and, you know, the, um, the military, uh, yeah, provides for the common defense, but there was a European leader who said that the military is the most important institution in any nation because it guarantees all of the others. It guarantees yeah. all of the others. Okay? True. And to, um, True. to reinforce what Paul just said a second ago, the synonym for leadership is influence. Yeah. And so everything you do, see, that's what I earlier was, was touching on. Everything you do has a potential to influence, even a single sentence or you know, a look. And even how you, how you present yourself in terms of the aura, the demeanor, and, um, you know, like when things are not going right 100%, you know, whether you control yourself or lose control. I mean, that, those, how you present yourself in all cases uh, is, is influencing either for good or bad. Good mm -hmm. or bad, okay? Yeah. So that's so true. Sorry. No, I mean, uh, that's something that you're trying to, well, I know that you flesh out in your book. Right. Um, uh, and... Uh, John Paul is doing in the Iconic Warrior sure. series. But yeah, for those of you who haven't uh, cl uh, been clued into that, um, Gene has two books out. They're, on, they're called The Iconic Warrior. There's The Genesis of a Fighting Soldier. That's his first book that came out last year. And then volume two is called The Warrior's First Battle. And I hope I can do justice by saying that, you know, the, the, the protagonist is John Paul. Uh, he's a Franco-American I like to say that because yes. I'm a Franco-American. Yeah, in is. fact, Franco-Americans more than just uh, what was that little spaghetti, whatever. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he he uh, his character uh, is uh, the iconic warrior. He's the guy that grows up. Uh, he's trained, uh, you know, traditional family, uh, a God-fearing family, and then he finds himself caught up in uh, the uh, these great movements of history. Sure. 
and uh, he learns how to be a warrior. He learns how to be a leader. And I think there's a lot in there uh, for all of us. Uh, And it's a good story. I mean, and you learn history, uh, and it's very entertaining. And so you kind of, you're you're making history come alive. But I think that's one thing, not just to... um, not just trying to find a way to get a quick plug in for your books, but your books do have that. They actually yeah. have, you, you see toxic leaders. Oh, sure. He gets faced with some of those yep. and how he interacts with some of those. And, and then he's got the good examples of leadership. So your book really uh, not only is looking at a, uh, you know, this warrior's journey, but really uh, what leadership is. Right. It, it's, and uh, I know that's, below the surface but it's there if you have an eye to see it right yeah so the things we've been uh the three areas that uh, to prepare um combat leaders warriors is the first is uh, prepare them mentally and it's already uh we just t- we touched on it already it's the yeah. idea of instilling in your people first of all you have to have it yourself yeah but then and it has to be genuine it's not something that okay i heard this on a podcast so i'm gonna this is who yeah. i am no it's got to be genuine people will see right through it. that's exactly right yeah. so the uh the idea of uh, per- creating uh, a mindset an attitude which is mental among your people team unit whatever about being a warrior and that mm-hmm. you are there to prepare for combat that's what it is that's what the uh, the military is for it's not the you know you can do a lot of other things, build bridges in Honduras or pass out MREs at the, after the hurricane and all that. That's all fine, but the bottom line is it's to, to go to war. So, um, As you say, as I've heard you said on a previous podcast, is as guardians of the republic, that's it. Uh, warriors uh, exist uh, for the security, survival, safety. and safety of the state. That's it. And so uh, very Clausewitzian, but it's also very true sure. and anchored in our founding documents. Yeah, it's good. It's very important. Provide for the I mean, I stole that from you. No, but hey, it's good. <laughs> it wasn't original, but that's okay. Yeah, Provide yeah. for the common defense, right? So, um, anyway, the the whole thing that about the the leader is always to um, present him or herself as a warrior. One of my favorite philosophers is Yogi Berra. <laughs> yeah, Yogi said that baseball is ninety percent mental, and the other fifty percent is physical. <laughs> so I would say, in keeping with Yogi. Being a warrior is 90% mental and the other 50% is physical. But that's it. It's mental. You keep asking yourself, um, these are, you know, there's always a process of uh, when you're leading a self-assessing. And it's also good to get feedback from other people. But uh, in lieu of that, you can ask yourself, you know, what am I doing to prepare myself and my unit for combat? What else could I do? What more could I do? Am I doing enough? How effective is our training, our maintenance, our understanding of what we were expected to do if the gun sounds? So those are uh, good questions that deserve Truthful answers. There was a, a management guru named uh, W. Edwards Deming, and he created a quality movement for a manufacturing organization, the quality movement. And one of his core ideas for quality uh, was continuous improvement. And so that, that, was, that idea was how we are functioning today should be better than we functioned yesterday, mm-hmm. and how we're going to function tomorrow is better than we have how we functioned Today, in other words, you're always looking for continuous improvement. Now, see, that's part of the mental mindset and mental attitude that warriors must have with their unit, their team, uh, to strive to improve always to be better on the battlefield. And part of that is to get input. You know, you got a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Suppose, okay, let's just say you're a tank commander, or a company commander, or even a platoon sergeant. Okay, 
So you've got people in your unit that have actually seen action, been in combat, or maybe been through ranger school, or had been in a, because you know, when I was in Panama, every time the people from the 82nd would come down, they would always, you know, they'd be a cut above the type of equipment they have and the attitudes they have. And if we get a, a person that um, had been at Fort Bragg, he was that, as a soldier, he was always cut above because there's a whole warrior mindset at uh, Fort Bragg. Mm. So that's kind of the idea to, um, to uh, always look for improvement. Um, it starts because, I mean, this is important too with, with everything you do is uh, I think people don't want to discount uh, the importance of, you know, your, your, everything follows, you know, your mind, you the primacy of the intellect. Right. I mean, uh, not to, I think it's important. I mean, I, I like, uh, uh, I'm a Christian. Sure. But I also value uh, stoicism. Sure. And that aspect of behavioral maintenance and uh, the primacy of the intellect. So, you know, your, uh, your thoughts become your words, become your actions, yeah. right, and right. become your behavior. So, Everything follows your thought life. So if you're if you uh, if you have uh, the mentality of right. being a warrior, then you know they that I mean it's it I think it goes without saying that that's half of getting there. It's half the battle. It's it's like hey, this I exist. Excellent to provide for the safety, security, and say uh, survival. survival of the state. And then as far as you know, being a husband, right? You know everything this this patrol does or fails to do is my fault. You know, it's all my responsibility. So. Sure. Of course, my wife helps me. She's my yeah. helper. But I mean, just getting getting that mindset right, right, and then owning it, right. And then so uh, I think that's awesome when you're developing your subordinate leaders that they they see, hey, this is how I can. Uh, uh, it all begins with the right mindset. Right. That's you know? key. That's absolutely that's key. key. Right. So if you don't have that right, you could you could jack steel all day long. Right. You could be running. Uh, I mean, and I see this too um, in the pipeline. Q course, if guys don't have it upstairs, it's just not happening. Right. You could be a beast, right. and, and and your your uh, MOS skills are awesome. But if your if your mind's not right, there's a good chance that you're going to fail. Yeah, that's good. You know, so it does. It all. I I have to say, primacy of the intellect. It's so important. It's Having good. the right mindset. Yep. And in keeping with that, um, everyone knows the idea of muscle memory. That if you do the same um, physical activity over and over and over, your mind. Uh, yeah. You have to think about it. Your, your mind Subconscious. Is, that's correct. So yeah. the same thing applies to create those brain pathways about being a warrior. Mm-hmm. You, you do it, you think about it long. And, and see, that's what my uh, protagonist, my main character in my John Paul books, because he wanted to be a great warrior from the time he was five years old because he traveled to France and um, he, he sat on his grand, 90-year-old grandfather's knee who had served with Napoleon in the Battle of Waterloo and he'd been in Russia and... Uh, and he told them stories, and from that, uh, he just got inspired. He wanted to be, and plus he was a big Bible reader. So, he, you know, Joshua and Gideon and David and you know, all those heroes from the Bible. Mm-hmm. So the idea of um, if you constantly, whatever you think about, you become. So yes. if you're thinking about um, being a warrior, that's what you become. Now, yeah. there, you know, like there was from between uh, Vietnam and uh, the first Gulf War, it was another the next major deployment. It was like 23 years of about of peacetime, and, you know, in Grenada and Panama, but generally it was peacetime. So the thing about it is being a warrior, you always, um, as a leader, you always have to keep your, your, your men and women jacked and, and uh, you know, keep, keep the vision clear as to why you're there, what you're preparing for, and, um, That's, and that. 
Yeah, and that's Proverbs uh, 23, 7, as a man thinks, so he is. So he is. Excellent. Uh, and, you know, that's there, there may be some extent where you may, you know, be presu- you don't want to be presumptuous. So this needs to be, you know, um, seat belted, right. if you will. You know, you could have ideas of, you know, grandeur, sure. delusions and stuff like that. But but that that's absolutely true. I think uh, generally speaking is, you know, if you if you have the right mindset, if you think of yourself that way, you think of yourself as a servant. You know, that's that's who you are. It's good. You're going to become that. Yep. You know, we live out what we believe. Right. And so you live out what you, who you think you are. That's right. Yeah, very important. And see, um, if you uh, cont- continue... I'm preaching to, over here, sorry. No, no, it's all good. <laughs> so That's I, my job. No, it's all good. The, um, so when I was a battalion commander, um, even when I was a battalion XO in Panama, I would give um, professional development classes, and I'd use a lot of history examples, um, like you know, the Battle of Trenton. There was... a um, American who's a spy, and he, mm-hmm. he knew that uh, Washington was coming to attack. So he writes it on a note and takes it in, and it's Christmas Eve, and the commander of the Hessians is playing cards and drinking with his guys, his officers, and so he hands it to the guy. guy puts it in his pocket, <laughs> and they all go to bed. And uh, you know, <laughs> why, Yeah, that was it. Washington <laughs> ran them. And the, you know, anyway, so that... I mean, I tell stories like that. So what you don't know can kill you. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's it. Okay, I got to share about that. <laughs> you know, the uh, we used to, when I was uh, teaching at the center, uh, I was a, a trainer, um, faculty at the Center of Great Leadership. We had a model that what, you know what you know, the knowns, and then there's there's things that you know that you don't know. Like for example, I don't know how to play the piano. I don't know how to play the violin. I know I don't know how to do that. And what can kill you? What Paul just said. Is the unknown unknowns things uh, that you don't know that you don't even know? Yeah. I know when I was uh, first joined the army, I would get in trouble over this, that, and the other, and I didn't even know I was supposed to do that stuff. But but once I learned, <laughs> I mean, uh, that was fine. But that yeah. that's what can really uh, that's why studying. See, I'm not too keen about the word training. I like uh, teaching and learning. I yeah. like those phrases. Those to me are much better. And then a whole business about uh, what's the difference between training and education? Because when I was on a, uh, teaching at, as a civilian at the Army Staff, uh, Command General Staff College. So the question was, is this training or is this education? Well, it depends what class you're, t- what class you're involved. The whole point is yeah. it's learning, okay? But the, uh, to, to go on about the mental preparation, um, what I said is I used to give these classes. I remember um, Moshe Dan, the one, uh, he had an eye patch and famous eye patch. He was a famous general and was responsible for the 5667 victories that uh, Israel had over the Arab states. Uh, he, he went to the Army Command General Staff College as a major at Fort Leavenworth. And it was said of him, I mean, he was legendary. In fact, when I went to the pre-command course there, he, they were still talking about him, how he would go up to the instructors um, at the end of every uh, lesson and um, at the break and, and ask, what about this and what about that? And uh, how would you think about this? And, and, and he was like... A, there was a sense of urgency and intensity with him, and like he was like really a warrior, and so uh, he he took the Bible and uh, he used a lot of the the things that the Lord used uh, with the children of Israel uh, in their in their battles, like um, night operations, a lot of stealth, a lot of surprise, a lot of deception, mm. the things that um, are in the scriptures. Uh, he he used a lot of that, and he. Uh, appropriated a lot from the Bible. So anyway, 
in, in part of the warrior, creating the warrior mindset, you, you, uh, it'd be good to use um, history, history examples. And um, we would actually, at Fort Leavenworth, in our training leadership course there, we would always have uh, little clips from, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers or, uh, you know, Full Metal Jacket or Patton. And see, so I would submit to you that um, creating a warrior mindset is you can do that in your professional development and even show maybe at night in a mess hall, show the whole movie on a Friday or Saturday. And then, and then what we would do, we would discuss it. You know, how would you handle that? What would you do? Did you, did, you know, did he, did he handle that correctly? Did he, uh, what would you do differently? So in, ter in terms of uh, applications and lessons learned and best practices, those are the kind of things we did. And, um, we would also uh, have a um, little, I don't know, call it a reading club, but we would read um, military books. And then we'd sit down, generally with the officers, we'd sit down and we'd talk about uh, what we read and what we can learn from that too. Uh, there's a, a couple that I just want to mention here. There's one called, uh, this really had an impact on me. It's called The Forgotten Soldier by Guy S-A-J-E-R. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it since I've never heard it pronounced, but Chazier, he was from Alsace-Lorraine, but he was drafted in the German army. And uh, he wrote a book about his experience on the Russian front. Mm. And, man, that'll make your hair stand up. Yeah, and then, uh, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, Theodor Plever, P-L-I-E-V-I-E-R. He wrote a book, Stalingrad. And it was probably, it, it's recorded that that may have been the toughest battle um, in, in the toughest campaign in the history of warfare, the Russians and the Germans in, uh, in Russia. And there's another book that, that's called Deadly Brotherhood, The American Soldier in World War II by John McManus. Uh, so these are books that you could read because, again, it's the whole notion is to prepare mentally. Um, and see, the more prepared you are mentally, physically, and emotionally, the, the better you can function and also the less probability that there's going to be some after-effect PTSDs. Or if there is PTSD, it's not as severe as mm. if you go into it, you know, blindly. So, Yeah, that's a, I think that's really... Uh, I just want to underscore the importance of what you're saying there. Uh, you know, going into it, having the mindset that, uh, you know, you can be maimed, you can lose an eye like sure. Mo uh, Moshe Dayan. Right. You, you, uh, you know, he has some, a lot of great quotes. I remember too, he said, uh, when he's driving, he said, do you want me to, you know, look, I have one eye. Do you want me to look at the speedometer or the, or the, uh, the road? <laughs> Just, <laughs> I like it. A, yeah. This idea of like, uh, I'm speeding. That's what I do. Right. But yeah, he lived like that. And he did. Uh, but just, just that idea of uh, having your mindset right, like, hey, there's a good chance that I can be sure. uh, become, you know, lose my legs, my arm, and, and getting your mind right for that way, I think, uh, is important f to lessen the effects of, uh, you know, potential P PTS, PTSD. Right. Right. I mean, it just, I think it stands to reason. Uh, it's not the be all. I mean, obviously, there's uh, there's some uh, moral. Right. wounds some emotional wounds there some but i think that actually i mean it can't it can't hurt right you know i tend to put you in harm's way the commander would say and uh a lot of you may not now i think about this too before i go on a christian mission my wife and i can be killed easily sure i mean of course uh we're carrying bibles we're in a country that's has an oppressive government that hates christians why wouldn't we right at least imprisoned uh, at least beaten, right? Uh, but I think to have the mindset, we say it's okay if that's the will of God. And I think, and I, I love to hear that in 
uh, leadership classes at church where, where the person will say, there are some of us in this room, they're going to have to die for the gospel. Uh, and so why wouldn't you have that same mindset with the, with the military, with the army? Right. Uh, that you could, you know, you're going to get hurt, let, let alone killed. Um, but I think that's really important. Get, get to, to press that upon your leaders and those that are serving under you. So very important. No, that's good. Because um, I've shared my thoughts about this with a number of people, and they said, why would you do that, man? Why would you put yourself in the military since you can volunteer? Well, the point is for, for some people, like you were just mentioning, Paul, Christianity is worth dying for. Absolutely. And, for, and, and if you're in the military, when you take your oath to the Constitution, you're pretty well saying, I'm prepared to die for the state. Okay, yeah, that's it. That's it. You know, if somebody gives me an order to take that hill, then okay, half of you aren't going to come back. I mean, that's the state, and at least, and yeah, not at least, but it's just that's what it's all about. So okay, oh. all right. Um, that was. Let's see. I think that's, that's pretty well. Yeah, that, that's good. I think that's pretty well the mental. So the physical, we understand what that is. Um, the more physically fit you are. You know, the less fatigue you become, the more mentally alert you are, and you can function longer and stronger than if you were in bad condition. So, you know, the running and weight training and uh, for strength and rucksack marching and, and, you know, the whole notion of watching your weight and drinking water to increase your metabolism, eating fruits and vegetables, you know, you got all that. And um, I, I want to j- jump on that, too. I just sure. talked uh, uh, to a friend of mine the other day, and we talked about uh, the initial approach, the initial couple of years in Afghanistan and having right. teams there. And of course, you know, Afghanistan is very mountainous. Sure, you know, sure. You've got cities at, you know, 12,000 feet. Right. And so you had firefights up, you know, above 10,000 feet. And then, so when, you know, you, when you go and dismounted and you're chasing um, insurgents, you know, Taliban over these mountains, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're a mountain goat. Yeah. And uh, so my friend recounted me to me that, you know, something I think we overlook is, He's, you know, we had to send guys home from group, wow. from special forces group because they just they couldn't do it. Their bodies weren't ready, and so, you know, if their body's not ready, then you can't get to the fight. And so, what good are you? And I think I think sometimes we just forget that it's like, hey, right. you know, your uh, of course your mind is important, but man, if your body's not ready, it's yeah. not trained, it can't do that. It's just not going to get you to the fight. That's right, and. Uh, and I think sometimes we just take that for granted, yeah. but yeah, how you eat is very important. Mm-hmm. You know the uh, how you're training. Yeah. You know, uh, I could go off on a long tangent on that, but but I think I just wanted to to plug that. Uh, my friend, you know who you are. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's good. The um, the thing is too, as you start aging, um, you have to whether you're a senior NCO or an officer, you have to keep up with the 18, 19 year old, you know, recruits, right? Yeah. You have to keep up with them. Yeah. Like, you know, first sergeants have to run with the unit, right? Yeah. So the, um, and you know, your body, as you get older, tries to fight back. So you got to overcome that. Um, there was a joke about general officers in the early 20th century that many of them could no longer mount a horse because of their weight. The uh, commander of the American forces in Cuba in the war with Spain in 1898 was uh, Major General William Pecos Bill Shafter. They named Fort Shafter after him in uh, Hawaii. He weighed over 300 pounds. And he was selected to command the Army Force in Cuba because he had no political agenda or connections. So he was so large, you ready? He was so large, he was unable to mount a horse, and they had to have a stool to even wow. get on a mule. 
And so oh, when wow. he was in Cuba, he had many bouts with illness. He had gout. And several times he was um, out of action. He was unable to perform his duties. Um, and really, he was quite a lame um, <laughs> choice, I think, to be a commander of combat in a combat theater of operations. Wow. But, and, and in World War I, the, um, there was a number of uh, French corps commanders and different division commanders that within the first six weeks of war, they were flat relieved because they could not keep up in combat, either physically or professionally. They had let themselves go physically, physically, too many lawn parties, too much wine, Bordeaux, and they had not continued to grow professionally. So I think that's a key lesson for warriors. I always liked the Greeks, the Spartans, and the Norsemen, the Vikings. They were still, they had guys that were in their 60s, they were going to combat. I mean, that's, uh, but I got to add, add about that is General Patton. Um, he was concerned about growing older and how that would impact his opportunities uh, for command. So in his late 40s and even 50s, he learned to fly an airplane. He sailed a boat from California to Hawaii. He always played competitive club polo. And uh, he was he would not going to be taken out of the action. In fact, he was still a very effective commander of Third Army at the age of 60. And there's another thing about this. This is, this is really interesting. There was a lot of lessons learned from the uh, British in the Falkland Islands in their war with Argentina. The British Army found out that people that were runners, that were all thin and skinny and, you know, good long-distance runners and so forth, they couldn't hang. It's the guys that, uh, that had some more, some more girth, some more meat on their bones. They were able to physically function in that cold, windy, and desolate terrain of the Falcons where these runners mm. that were um, <coughs> you know, kind of light with their weight, they, they had a tough time there. So anyway, so I think it's, um, it's pretty... Yeah, you got to be able to get to the fight. That's yeah. right. I mean, sure. If you can't, uh, yeah, it's right. Uh, you can have all of the expertise in the world if you just can't get there. Right. Yeah, we're good, are you? Absolutely. So, lastly, is um, we talk about emotional strength, and uh, this this may not you know, go the the path that you might think it is, but what I'm talking about here is things that keep people's uh, soldiers' emotions under control and uh, in balance. Mm. And they're not necessarily what you would say uh, traditional or conventional, but they've all been proven them to, um, to be truth. Like, for example, the first thing. Uh, after World War II, our government um, sponsored several research projects that studied American soldiers in combat. That was the war that just was finished. And one of the key findings was that the units who had leaders, whom the soldiers trusted as being competent, and concerned about their men, mm. had fewer instances of combat fatigue than those units whose leaders, whose soldiers, sorry, whose soldiers did not trust their leaders. So good leadership thus resulted in only in, in fewer battlefield casualties, but also uh, fewer post-battle casualties. So good leadership uh, is um, a foundation for the emotional health of the soldiers. No doubt. If you, uh, I've been in toxic situations where you have a toxic leader and I've just got hurt. I wasn't in combat at the time, but I remember getting hurt was one thing. It was like, you got hurt and it just carried the baggage of, because yep. I'm in this sucky unit. Right. You know, so I can, uh, when I almost died in combat, uh, you know, I got shot. Sure. Uh, in the neck. Uh, it's back in 06. It wasn't a great unit. It had great leaders. And it made all the difference. Right. Of course, um, yeah, it absolutely resonates. If I had a been, if I had been in a toxic unit, and you'd almost it would carry it would just carry that uh, that emotional baggage and, and 
just to know the knowing that knowing that uh, they're like, yeah, I don't even care if you got killed. Who cares? You're just you know another rung in the ladder for this person to climb up right. to their their stardom. Right. And who cares? But when I did get hurt, I had everybody. I mean, they were on me. You know uh, that band aid package, all that stuff. I had people visiting me. Right. They got you know they came to the hospital bed, you know, seeing how it was, uh, and I, I was very impressed. Uh, with my unit and how they did that. It's good. And yeah, you, it, it, uh, it really says a lot too. I mean, I mean, that does resonate with me. It's good. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. The, um, yeah, we talk about why soldiers fight. And, uh, one of the key things that, um, is talked about a lot that they, they soldiers fight for their comrades. And so the question yeah. is their, their, their mates. So the question is, why is that? Well, they think that their mates will help keep them alive, help them survive. So the bottom line with leading in combat, soldiers want to survive. They want to survive the fight and go back to see their wife and kids or family, whatever, right? So if you can lead in such a way now, is it, or can you make sure that all your soldiers survive? Possibly not, because you're not, you're not God. But the thing is, the way you train them and the attitude and the, the resources you get for them and how you deploy them, you can do a long way to helping your folks sur- survive. Uh, there was a story in Vietnam about a soldier fragged his lieutenant. And uh, if you know what that means, that means he tossed a fragmentation grenade in the hooch of his lieutenant. And when he was asked why he did that, he said, that SOB would have gotten us all killed. Mm. Yeah? Huh? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't necessarily recognized as being a competent LT. So, um and that's why he was. That's how he was treated by his soldiers, and that's not the kind of thing that creates emotional stamina. So anyway, um, part of being uh, of increasing emotional stamina, stamina is that the leaders should prepare themselves and their unit for uh, combat by being professionally as professionally competent as possible. And to be professional is to have the knowledge, skills, judgment, and strength to perform at the highest standards of your profession. And certainly, the military is uh, is a profession, right? Mm. Because you do that because when you go into combat, well, Sun Tzu said the best is when you never have to fight. You just, through deception, undermine your enemy. But sometimes that's not real. So you always try to fight. So you have the minimum amount of casualties and the minimum amount of resources expended, okay? And the key thing is minimum amount of casualties. And so that the more competent you are, and believe me, soldiers may not be the most educated folks in the world, but they're not stupid. They're not dumb. They'll, they'll know if you... They'll know if you know what you're doing or not. They'll know it just by watching you operate and the fact that whether you can, are cared about them or concerned about them or not. So you know, the whole notion of um, as a warrior leader, you know the capabilities of the unit's equipment and maybe as well, if not better than the soldiers. You know, you got to do a lot of reading, studying, asking questions of warrant officers, seasoned NCOs, um, other seasoned NCOs, maybe, and if they got tech reps, so all the technical ex- expertise is important, and um, tactically important, tactical impor- uh, competence is really important. So to go out and uh, and you can do this no matter what, whether you're a squad, a platoon, a company, you you don't need a big battalion or brigade division exercise to go out and, and uh, deploy, you know, fire maneuver, uh, cover and concealment, patrolling, map reading, night operations, hand signals. Um, if you ever watch a band of brothers, man, they had some serious hand signals. Even today, I had no idea what they were signaling. <laughs> Honestly, I watched oh, that yeah. on, on Memorial Day, and I was like, golly. But anyway. Um, 
So what we're, and, and uh, those three things you're looking at is uh, three co uh, components of developing combat leaders. We're looking at stamina, resilience, and uh, strength. Right. The, um, and it, but we started with mentality. Mental, mental, and then yeah. uh, and uh, physical, mental, and, physical, and, and emotional. Right, and so okay. right now we're we're working with the emotional. Okay? okay, these are things that can make people feel emotionally secure, so yeah. that uh, they function better. And so that I'm straight. Ah, it's good. Yeah, it's these, all good. These components. Yeah, it's all good. Okay. It's but it starts with the mental. Yep. And then you have physical. Um, I think the if the emotional aspect too. I think because uh, just to go back when we started. As as a leader, you're you're, you're kind of projecting this uh, sense of, uh, like you said, you're in a you're in a fishbowl, right? And people know if you're pissed. Yeah. People know where you're at, and uh, if you, you walk around all pissed, you know you're you're throwing the equilibrium off of the right. whole unit, and so it matters as a leader, you know how that's how that's you know perceived. Right. That's good. It's really important. All three yeah. of those for yourself yeah. as you're developing your subordinates. No, that's great. It's good. <laughs> So the idea of uh, tactical competence is, you're again, you're, you're training, teaching your people, uh, your folks, the soldiers' craft. Yeah. The idea of uh, what it's like to be a soldier, and uh, that's not a word. Field craft, being able to function in the field. Soldiers' craft, being able to do all the things that soldiers. When the soldiers have a, a good sense of their their craft, it increases their confidence, and this adds to the most st emotional stability. So that when they go into a fight, they know I'm trained. I've been taught. I got this. And so it gives them a personal security about going into combat. So therefore, it uh, helps their emotional stability. And another point here about... Um, is uh, Another point is about character. Uh, and that attributes a great deal to emotional stability. And it's one of those leadership words that's tossed around. People don't know very much. What does that really mean? Well, I'm going to tell you. And Well, a lot of people don't like the word because it has a moral con uh, connotation to it. No the doubt. basic idea of character is, a, is always to do the right thing. It's not following the polls, the latest fad, or making decisions based on how the wind is blowing or what is politically correct or incorrect or expedient. But character is always doing the right thing. And that includes if you do things that may not have totally positive conflict, uh, consequences for you. So, it's in a given so the question is then how do you determine what the right thing is in a given situation? All right, so this is where we go. The good Lord has given each of us a conscience. Our conscience is uh, within us. It's a written moral code, the core of which is essentially the Ten Commandments. So they are the uh, Almighty's code of conduct that shows how, us how to live successfully and gives us guidelines on the right thing to do. So for the military leader, both in preparation for combat and in combat, combat you always ask, what's the right thing to do? What is my duty in this situation? What is the honorable thing to do? What is my conscience telling me the right thing to do? And uh, they should say, okay, if they answer that question for themselves, then they should do it. There was a book um, published several years ago called Lost in Transition. Transition. Mm. The author, Christian Smith, he interviewed, listen to this, interviewed 700 Generation Zs and asked the following questions. How do you make moral decisions? How do you determine right from wrong in a given situation? No. This is pretty amazing, actually. The four most common answers were, it's based on how I felt. It would be what would make me the happiest. It's always up to the individual, and it's a matter of personal choice. Now, notice there's nothing about a moral code, nothing about the conventions or protocols of society, nothing about laws, rules, regulations, or doing the right things. The answers indicated that it is 
always up to the individual. It's I, me, or my. Or the anthem of many in, in their current generation, oh, say, can you see it's all about me? So those four items that were, I just mentioned, they're not the basis for decision-making, and they're not going to, in keeping with good character, about doing the right thing, especially in combat or crisis situation, and they're not the basis for influencing, which is the core of leadership, or setting a good example in any situation, especially in combat. Conscience is always the best guide. And um, Is it any wonder that we're in such uh, chaos? Yeah. yeah, and our consciences have to be informed. By scripture, so I go. I'll be uh, the, the the bad guy here as a no, preacher, but okay. but our our consciences are, you know, the uh, the judgment hole in the soul, right? And so it uh, things are gone gone well or bad. It's affected, right. and so uh, yeah, I love the uh, when you said character. It's also really important. Uh, that word is is found in Hebrews chapter uh, one verse three. Okay. But uh, it speaks of Christ as the the, the exact representation of the yeah. nature of God. Right. Uh, and so it's the it's in the express image. So when you take a signet ring and you press it into wax, right. there's a one for one, you know, uh, reflection of it. And uh, so I love that when it comes to leadership, character is that you can take and reduplicate your character into others. Right. You can pass that character that uh, that's made up of all those you know the good morals, yep. uh, your your love for America, your fear of God. Uh, your desire to do the very best you can, all those things you can, you know, to to a large extent, you know, they can be reduplicated in others. Sure. I mean, ultimately, it's not up to us because it's got to take in this other person. Right. <laughs> but um, but when we've done the very best we can do, uh, that's what we're doing is we're, we're passing on, you know, these, these really good character traits, and we're hoping that those are, you know, being learned sure. as we're influencing. Right. So, yeah, I just love that, that word character, because the Greek word is actually character. Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, it means an impression. Well, there's it's a awesome. lot. Yes. <laughs> there's a lot of military uh, leaders, like Matthew Ridgway, who saved the, the war in uh, Korea. We would have lost it if it hadn't been for him. All right. So, a um, couple other things here. Uh, communication is a subcategory of character. And uh, it really helps emotional stability in combat. Soldiers have to always be told the truth what they're facing and always know the mission and what the objectives are and the greater picture of current operations. Also, the warrior character should always communicate with optimism mm. and he can't be running around yelling. The leader cannot be running around yelling, we're all going to die. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, leadership's not yelling, but sometimes you do have to raise your voice a little bit, I guess. Yes. But some people mistake, oh, you're, you're, you're in charge, you just yell a lot. Yes, that's good. So the final subsection of emotional stability is spiritual. God does exist. Ah. God does exist. He's omniscient, knows everything. Omnipresent, always present everywhere. And he's omnipotent, that is, he's all-powerful. To know that the good Lord will always be with you can be a great personal comfort and emotional comfort both before going into battle and during the battle. So we can communicate with the Almighty through prayer and so doing ask for his protection, guidance, and help in doing our duty. Because he's an amazing and invaluable resource, right. and he can give us supernatural skills and courage to do what must be done in battle. Amen. He knows the future and therefore can guide and direct us accordingly. Okay, there's such a thing as an atheist prayer. Listen to this. <laughs> it goes something like this. Tomorrow I'll be going to combat. I will be on my own. 
I will have no invisible friend to help or protect me. I have only myself to count on. I hope I have a nice fight, and I hope I make it. And if I don't, I have no idea where I'll go in the hereafter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, wow. so there's choices. You can either trust the Almighty or you can trust yourself. Good luck with that, as they would say. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah you know. Um, that's a well, bad place to be. A lot of people don't, uh, with great bravado, they don't like the, uh, the idea of God, you know, even warriors that currently are in the military. But I, I, I submit to you finally here, uh, in, the, in the first Star Wars movie, Luke Skywalker was in the Dagobah, Dagobah swamp, and he was being trained to be a Jedi warrior by Yoda, the Jedi Master. Yeah, good. So they were taking good scene. a Yeah, good one, right? <laughs> so they were taking a break, and they were talking about the dark side, the dark, you know, the dark force, and Luke Skywalker with great... Intensity said, I am not afraid. And Yoda, the Jedi Master, who generally talked in reverse syntax, you will be afraid. He didn't say like he would normally, afraid you will be, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. for emphasis, you will be afraid. So, yeah, you can dismiss the Almighty, but I'm going to tell you, uh, if you got him on your side, that's, um, that's really an advantage. Okay, so there's many more things about combat leadership I could probably talk about. But I think the ones uh, are the key imperatives. So, you know, influencing leadership by example, developing mental, physical, and emotional stamina and resilience, because I think those will provide a good foundation uh, for becoming a warrior leader. And I hope this creates a greater interest in yeah. more extensive study and learning on the topic. Absolutely. I think that is, uh, I mean, th this would be a good platform to branch out and, and all those other ones, all those other topics. But, uh, yeah, I hope that uh, our listeners have been uh, made better by hearing this, you know, this time that we spent with Gene. Uh, and, again, uh, those books he has. He has other books, too, other outside of the Iconic Warrior series. Uh, he has a book entitled Crisis Leadership, uh, which is about 20 years. It's been out there. It's been influencing uh, a lot of leaders since then. It's still selling. I'm still, still getting selling. from yeah. that. <laughs> Building Your Team's Morale, Pride right. and Spirit. Yep. It's another read. And then, uh, of course, building character. We were talking about that. Uh, he's had a few of these books have been out for a while. But, yeah, give it a read. Uh, Iconic Warrior has been out there. It's, uh, it's part of the Blacksmith family of books. And uh, I, for one, am, uh, have had a great hour I spent here with you, Colonel. I appreciate you coming up here. And I just, if I could just end on that one note is uh, we uh, leave ourselves in the lurch if we do not acknowledge that there's a God uh, and we, to our own hurt, uh, we're not you know, tapping in, not even tapping in, but then just acknowledging who God is. And then that, uh, you know, he is Lord of your life, Lord of your life. I think uh, what will it matter if you are the greatest on this planet, but if you don't have your soul uh, safe in his hands and not only that, but uh, think of all the great things you could do in this life uh, you know, having the Lord as your God. So good. I appreciate you coming out today. I wonder if we could just end in prayer. Sure, come on. So Father God, we just thank you for this special time and you created heaven and earth with words and um, you said let there be and there was and so your power is uh, amazing. So Lord, um, you know everyone that listens to this program and uh, we ask that you give a, put a special blessing on their life and keep them safe and healthy, Lord. And um, just help them with their development as a warrior, as a soldier, as a person, as one of your followers, Lord. And uh, we just 
love you, Lord, and we just appreciate who you are, and we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander Podcast. If you enjoy our unique content, please consider supporting our sponsors. Soft News, providing special operations news from around the world. It's where Paul and I go to keep abreast of what's going on within the soft community. Check them out at soft.news. Blacksmith Publishing, been serving the warrior class since 2013. They have great titles written for warriors, by warriors. If you're looking for excellent reference material or just want to unwind with a great novel, be sure to check out the bookstore located at blacksmithpublishing.com. And if you're looking for some cool Pinelander apparel, head on over to the General Store located at pinelandergeneralstore.com. That's all one word, pinelandergeneralstore.com. Have a great selection of shirts, hats, jackets, sweaters, stickers, patches, artwork, and a whole lot more. Check out the store at pinelandergeneralstore.com. If you're interested in helping develop our country's next generation of warriors, uh, please consider donating to the American Agogi Project. The mission of the project is to foster an environment producing able-bodied citizen warrior men of fine character. And we'll be officially launching the project in 2023 in celebration of uh, Blacksmith Publishing's 10th anniversary. Until our next meeting, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. To each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. May God continue to bless Prime Land.